Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please consider supporting Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hey, this is Nicole calling from Hamilton, and I needed to let everyone know that I really proudly support Beach and Creative Control. I have for many years, I will for many more, as long as he keeps delivering these amazing interview podcasts. When you hear one of Beach's interviews, you think he's known this guest for years, they're good friends, Uh, but the truth is he approaches every interview, whether it's sort of up-and-coming indie artists or established icons or like famous intimidating comedians with Uh, a really deep, genuine curiosity, so he's never met this person, and the same really warm uh, candor, as though he's known them forever. I think it really lends to a great chat, no matter who he's talking to, and for that reason, I think you should throw Vish, like what, a dollar a month? He's got jokes. The jokes make it worth it. Support Creative Control on Patreon. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. I'm Visha's wife, and remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit. Harry Shearer is an iconic American entertainer who divides his time between New Orleans and Southern California. An actor, comedian, broadcaster, musician, and writer, Shearer was a Saturday Night Live cast member, but is likely best known for his roles as bassist Derek Smalls in the film and similarly named band, This is Spinal Tap, and for voicing iconic characters on The Simpsons, including Mr. Burns, Waylon Smithers, Principal Skinner, Ned Flanders, Reverend Lovejoy, Kent Brockman, Dr. Julius Hibbert, and many, many more. Harry's latest work is a new album called The Many Moods of Donald Trump, which is due out in October 2020, just ahead of the U.S. presidential election, and via Twanky Records, a label Shearer co-owns with his wife, Judith Owen. Harry and I connected recently for a talk about the state of America in the summer of 2020, the power and limitations of comedy and other art forms to affect change a short history of political polarization and mass media production and consumption, 
whether or not the Simpsons have actually ever really predicted the future, the inspiration behind the many moods of Donald Trump, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you, who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at MasseyHall.com, where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free, including performances by past podcast guests like Andy Schaff, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 558th episode of Creative Control, featuring the multifaceted comedic force Harry Shearer with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Harry. How's it going? Hello, Vish. It's going all right. How are you? Not bad. Not bad, as I often do when I uh, begin a conversation like this one. I ask uh, my guests, where in the world are you? Where in the world are you today, Harry? Well, I'm in Southern California at the moment. Um, I uh, live mainly in New Orleans, but I, I came back out here to do some work, uh, um, on, actually to shoot the uh, motion capture stuff for my new Donald Trump video, which should be out uh, middle of next month. Okay, great. Now, by the way, I just uh, am marveling. I'm a little creeped out by the video you've released <laughs> thus far. It is some kind of... Actually, I'll let you describe it, but it's it's a bit bizarre. It makes me wonder if uh, we're going to actually know what our memories are, what reality is, because it's a manipulation. What is your latest... Uh, well, I guess it's... You just put out a lyric video. Uh, maybe... What was it? Last night? That's different. Yeah. For COVID-180. But Son-in-Law. Tell us about the video for Son-in-Law. How was that made? The song is, uh, uh, as as it seems to be, uh, Donald Trump's ode uh, to his uh, chief senior advisor in charge of all things, uh, Jared Kushner. And since I'm singing it in his voice, I wanted it to look as if he's singing it as well. And uh, I was in Sydney, Australia in February. My wife and I were touring down there. And just before they closed the country, uh, I uh, got to have a meeting with a uh, gentleman, Matt Hermans, who runs a small visual effects studio. Uh, Not small, but I mean compact, lean. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, can you do a motion capture video uh, where I'm performing as Donald Trump? He said, yeah. So it turned out to be a little more complex than that. It turns out to use... Aside from motion capture video, a couple of other technologies that he had to uh, make sure would play nice with each other. And it, and it turns out it's almost as complex to make machines play nice with, it, with each other <laughs> as it is to make people play nice with each other. But uh, we, uh, I came back to L.A., uh, shot the, my performance, and then uh, we worked COVID-style, uh, a Skype call about every two or three days to uh, look at the footage and uh, start shaping it and start calling shots and uh, doing other little adjustments, adding jokes. And uh, after about three months, it was finished. It was uh, Matt, the, the guy in the studio in Sydney, said it was the first time he'd done all of that stuff that was involved, where he just did a, a second video for another song on the Donald Trump collection and uh, went much faster. So uh, the learning curve is working. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I mean, maybe the answer is is rather obvious. But what exactly inspired uh, this project, uh, the album? I mean, uh, what, what inspired you to take this particular, you know, cultural form as as a means of expressing your thoughts on this president and maybe this time? Well, I do a weekly radio show here in the States on public radio, not NPR, but independent public radio. And I make fun of the news. And uh, sometimes I write sketches that I do all the characters in. And sometimes, more frequently recently, I write songs. And at at the beginning of this year, I looked back and I noticed, wow, I've written a lot of songs involving (laughs) Donald Trump. Because he's, you know... He's a guy who, uh, this may not come as a surprise to your listeners, wants to be noticed. So mm. he says and does almost anything just to uh, get into that day's news. And some of it was worthy of a sketch, a comedy sketch. I do this series called The Presidentus. Um, but some of it uh, just inspired song. It's, it's something he'd say or, or some part of the story that just went, that is a song. So I had a lot of these, and I thought, boy, I could make a collection. I'd take them into the studio with my producer, and because and, what I what appears on the radio show are largely demo versions, but mm. then I come into the studio with my producer, he brings in other musicians, we do full-on productions of them, and that's what we did, and uh, I just thought, kind of a good year for it, <laughs> you know, and, yes. and I don't have to explain much about the material, you know. It's yeah. it's in everybody's consciousness, so um, that's really the idea behind this project. So your radio show is called Le Show, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long have you been doing that? It embarrasses me to say uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm counting because I have to I have to distinguish between the two things I've been doing for a long time: The Simpsons and my radio show. But I think the radio show started earlier, so I think it's uh, over thirty five years. Something like 83 or something, I think. Yeah, eight, yeah, yeah, December of 83. Yeah, so radio became this medium for you. I th- That's fascinating in itself, given how we're processing information, I suppose, and that you chose uh, music, because this seems like one of the least musical presidents <laughs> we've had. Like, every president I can think of, they meet with a musician and they bring yeah. him in, and Trump has, yeah. but they seem like photo ops, and I can't see him, like getting down to Kid Rock, so to speak. Do you have a sense? Because I, I was thinking about the music you've, you've uh, the two tracks I've heard thus far, mm-hmm. COVID-180 and Son-in-Law. The musical choices fascinated me. What prompted that style? They're different styles, first of all. Yes. But when you're yes. trying to satirize someone with music, I assume the music plays a role, like the sound plays a role. How did you arrive at sounds for a guy who does not seem very musical? Uh, well, if you listen to the way he talks, he certainly doesn't sound very musical, especially when he reads. He reads in this flat monotone mm-hmm. that's that basically says to me, "I don't like reading." But <laughs> but uh, I um, I fancy that every one of the styles and every song in, in the in the collection is in a different style, uh, somewhat musical styles that at least were around him. Uh, during his life, from his youth to his whatever this is, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but that you know, we're uh, around him like you know the the disco uh, portions of uh, COVID one eighty seem to me to call back his days at Studio fifty four, for example, yeah. when he was hanging out there. So, you know, not every style that was 
that has been popular during his lifetime is represented here. I don't have him doing rap or anything like that. I try to keep it in what I imagine to be the wheelhouse of the music he was most exposed to. And it, it, it also was interesting to me to just work with different styles so that the, the uh, songs themselves have uh, continuing interest and don't, you know, sort of beat the same drum over and over right, again. Right, right. So he does not, you're, I, I, I agree with you, he does not uh, come across as a particularly musical person, but on the same, in the same line of reasoning, I suppose, he does seem to fancy himself a comedian. That's my read on him. He thinks he's funny. He goes for jokes, and mm-hmm. he has arguably a certain rhythm that way. Would you? Well, I'm not. I'm not suggesting he's a good comedian or a funny person. But do you know what I'm getting at? He, as a comedian yourself, do you see that wannabe impulse in him? Yeah, I, I, I see moments where you, you, he's sort of telegraphing. Now I'm kidding. I'm not sure he is kidding. You know, uh, he he evinced that uh, that tell most notably to me and most recently uh, when he said, so I told him, so let's slow down the testing. And his delivery, as I sort of aped it there, um, <laughs> suggested to me that he thought he could get away with saying that by pretending he's kidding. I'm not so sure he was kidding. I'm, he may have been actually. Now, this is, the, this is something... Uh, you'll find strange, but I thought that was one of those odd moments when he was actually telling the truth. Right. Yes. And he dresses and- those up by pretending he's kidding, whereas when he's lying, he's he's pretending he's be, he's serious. It's a yeah, it's, it's a cute it's little a, game. It's a game, but I, do you feel like maybe I've brought this up with other people, particularly comedians, when they when I have the opportunity to speak with them? Like it, he kind of. The right generally seems to be weaponizing comedy these days. So when they say something or do something reprehensible, they say, "Well, we were just joking." Locker mm-hmm. room talk started you, this whole thing, right? You, and you, I, you liberals have no sense of humor. You're right, and so th- th- that to me is a weird. I don't know. Like I, I feel like there's so many machinations in everything they do, but that stealing the strength of comedy and and turning it <laughs> against people who actually know how comedy works is very frustrating to me uh have you noticed this well they borrow they borrow i don't think they they regard it as comedy so much as irony you know have you no sense of irony have you sir at long last no sense of irony (laughs) right but i mean it is coloring how comedians express themselves now there's a lot of like I feel like there's a slight filtration system happening with some comedians because they don't want their words to be misinterpreted. And, and but politicians are run, are going whole hog with it. I'll get like you say he he's a performative speaker. He likes to get in the press. He needs attention. Mm-hmm. And he, I feel like he's trying to use comedic ideas or notions of comedy to get those things across. And then it makes the news. We all freak out. And then, like, within a few hours, they say, he was just kidding. He, yeah. he didn't mean we should stop testing. That, to me, is weaponizing comedy in a pure evil form. What do you make of that? Well, um, <laughs> you know, I, I know a little bit about pure evil because I play Mr. Burns. Uh, yes, yes, you do. And yeah. he seems to be uh, running your country now, Mr. Burns, on some <laughs> yeah. level. What happened? Well, I, I would say that uh, Mr. Burns is a slightly more strategic thinker than uh, the guy you're talking about. <laughs> um, I, I, I sense that liberals tend to impute strategy to a person who, uh, in my opinion, is pure id. Uh, and is, his only strategy is getting from this minute to the next minute uh, yeah. in terms of 
that that's why he can say things that are so blatantly at odds with what he said five minutes ago. It's a, it's you know it's if a if a traveling salesman came into your living room and started spouting a, a stream of nonstop blather about you know encyclopedias or vacuum cleaners. He would be doing so in a way that would say, would try to obliterate your memory of what he said five minutes ago when mm-hmm. he said it was free, you know, because now there's a fifty nine ninety five extra charge. Uh, and, and Trump is, I think, basically, if you look at what the tool, the basic toolkit he uses, it's the salesman's toolkit. Right. Uh, Trump stakes are the best in the world. I guarantee it. You, you know, you can st- that's still on the internet. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, but yeah. I, but I never said, but I never said that. You know, this, listen to what I'm saying now. Right. It's a salesman. It's a salesman's toolkit, and so a salesman might pretend to be joking, but he's basically got one thing in mind: buy this thing, or I'll kill you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you are a comedian. You're a satirist. You, you're a parodist, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I mean that goes without question on some level. Um, which to me means that you've got to be kind of highly attuned to, to human behavior on some level mm-hmm. to properly mm-hmm. get at what's going on there. And beyond Trump, I am curious. You know, you're in Southern California. You're in the states. California now, again, an epicenter for this uh, coronavirus. Uh, We are all Mm -hmm. observing the social unrest going on in your country. My question, I suppose, is as someone who observes human behavior ostensibly for a living, what do you make of your country right now, the way people are reacting to these various calamities? What is your perspective on what's going on? Well, I'm old enough to uh, remember 1968. And uh, I think that's the last time that this country was uh, as fractured, as fragmented, as uh, at uh, at these uh, fairly extreme poles. Uh, and I'm not referring to the fine Polish people. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think a lot of people forget really how bad it was then. Uh, in some ways, it was even more extreme. Three prominent Americans had been assassinated that year. Mm-hmm. Uh there was a fiendish war going on that uh, young men's asses were being hauled off into uh, involuntarily. So there was a lot of street activity yeah. in, Protests. in response. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You had the the uh, what I think most people now would would use the terminology the Chicago police riot in front of, uh, at the Democratic convention in that year. Yeah. It was really a, a, a time when people thought, what the hell is happening with this country, much like now? And I think maybe the coronavirus is playing the role of the uh, that the war played then in terms of an ongoing event that seemed to have a momentum all its own that could not be controlled, at least by uh, what passes for our government. Right, and and like the war, the virus is both uh, hyper real and surreal. It feels uh, abstract on some level. Uh, yeah, I mean, unless 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 you had a, a relative who was in Vietnam, or unless you have a relative who's uh, been sick with coronavirus, it can. They both can seem abstract, and yet they're horribly real. Yeah. So you invoke 1968 and the fracture there, the lack of galvanization, the fear um, that you know, pervaded your country. The anger. And the, the anger, anger, yes, the rage. And the mistrust, mm-hmm. I would say, yeah. as well. Yeah. So yeah. what, when you think back on it, how did the corner get turned? When? How did that all of that sort of subside into 
relative normalcy going into the 70s. I only ask this because, frankly, we need a solution to what's going on now. <laughs> and I just yeah. wonder if history, if in your recollection, do you remember when things felt just like maybe we're getting, and then you had the Manson thing, and all, I mean, oh man, the 60s ended badly, and it feels like yeah. the 20s and, are starting and went, badly. Went, in, went into the 70s with Kent State. Right. I look at that year, I, I picked 1968 just as a, a, a center of, of the, the storm. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I, I don't think that that all ended well. Uh, I think you can look at that period as the time when the left split and the labor movement under the, the direction of a fairly conservative, in, in labor terms, mm-hmm. uh, director George Meany, was in favor of the war. And the rest of the Democratic Party, uh, except for Lyndon Johnson, was against the war. And you had labor kind of divided from the Democratic Party, a split that proved, I think, to uh, have long-term consequences for the party, uh, for the left in in America. uh, Because all of a sudden, it was followed very closely by a, a... highly explicit Republican program to weaken the labor movement, and uh, which has been enormously successful. So I, I think, but you know, it was it was in the headlines of that era. It was the long hairs versus the hard hats. Right, right, <laughs> and, right. Uh, that was a very serious split, uh, and, and I think the the scars of it are, are still present. Well, you picked 68, and, and now that you uh, talk about but for those who don't know, I'm, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Harry, you did pursue uh, political science studies at Harvard. Is that correct? Um, undergraduate at UCLA, and then, uh, yeah, at, uh, Harvard for a year. I just want gra- people to know. Work. Yeah, I want people to know as you speak that you're bona fide. That's all. I'm just, uh, just <laughs> oh, so you're, people. <laughs> you're credentializing, are you? <laughs> I am. This is a it's a job interview. Frankly, yeah, it's turned yeah. into that. No, I just want people to know that you you have a sense of what you're talking about. But you pick '68, and I feel like the subtext of what you're getting at is some dawning of a current understanding of how polarization functions, because we are at a point where. I can't think of a in my lifetime. I'm 42. You're what? You're going to be 77 this year? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday! Thanks, if I thanks might say in advance. Yeah. yeah. So you've been yeah. around a long time. You pick 68 as this marker of some sort of sea change. Do you remember a time when we weren't this polarized? Where like the football league wasn't a political thing? Where comedy wasn't political? Music wasn't political? Everything's very political now. A, a ketchup commercial can be politicized. Mm-hmm. The truth and lies can be politicized to either person's ends. Do you recall a time in your country, in particular, where things weren't like this? Because I cannot. Uh, no, I mean it was pretty bad during in, in that sense during the Nixon era. Uh, you had uh, that was really the start of the uh, concerted campaign uh, by Republicans against the uh, media. Yeah. Uh, you had you had uh, the vice president talking about the nattering nabobs of negativism, <laughs> right. a, a phrase from the pen of William Sapphire, who was later a language columnist for the New York Times. Right, and I think that that that's been pretty consistently true. I mean. You had the the Reagan era, which was the sort of dawn of really sophisticated stagecraft in Washington. Washington had been, up until that point, derided as show business for ugly people. And suddenly, you know, the TV people came in and prettied it up and and, uh, 
put and you had a movie actor as president. Yeah, right. Uh, so so it's appropriate. And I just think that th- these trends have, you know, accelerated and and built upon themselves and and uh, grown exponentially, as we've learned to say in the recent uh, <laughs> exponential situation. Growth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it, and it it seems a, a systemic part of how, I mean, the media seems hapless in this case too because they they're like a dog chasing a car. Every time there's a soundbite or a news. Uh, we they have to go after it because we built the, the for some reason we've decided we need news twenty four seven and well you know I I think pardon me but I think first of all anybody who studied the career of Donald Trump knows he learned very early on you say the most outrageous thing uh, the newspapers print it you denounce the newspapers rinse and repeat um, yeah. and it goes all the way back to when he pretended to be his own PR person <laughs> right. calling up. Calling up the New York Post and giving them, you know, tips like Marla Maple says the best sex ever with Donald. And they knew it was him and they printed it anyway. Right. Because it sold papers. Right. And he his lizard brain understands that they cannot help themselves. Right. And, um, you know, that is his one keen insight into the whole process is that they they never can come to a point where they I mean, I, I was saying a couple of years ago. You know, Donald Trump's tweets should be in the, and finally today, section of a newscast, not a this just in section. Right, right. And they can't even have that much discipline. Now, what, what is your take on that? Why is that? Is it is it what I was saying? It's just that they need to feed the beast, and so whatever he says, like, I've noticed some of your, some of the American networks are like, we're not covering the speech anymore. We're not covering the speeches anymore. We're not covering his briefings anymore. We can't. Well, of course, that's that's because they they were, CNN, I think, is the one you're talking about. And MSNBC, they, yeah, a couple of them. Yeah. 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 But that uh, they were blamed for carrying all of uh, these Donald Trump rallies during the 2016 campaign live. Now, you know, I, I know enough about the news business to know that if they can hit a button or pull a switch and uh, have minutes and minutes and minutes of airtime filled at no expense and without losing viewers, they'll do it. Right. And there were these feeds of Donald Trump's speeches, and they didn't lose viewers by going to them live, so they went to them live. And then they get blamed for, well, you were, you know, these were basically campaign contributions. So now, you know, they're flipping in the other direction and going, well, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I, 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 I'm old enough to remember a time before the news operations of the networks were expected to be profit centers. And that's a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, and ever since, there's been a winnowing. I'm, I remember in my childhood, thank, thankfully it was my childhood, when I knew the names of the CBS bureau chief in Rome and Paris and Tokyo. Well, they don't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, my best example is uh, a couple of years ago, uh, David Gregory, who was then hosting Meet the Press, started the program by saying, we have uh, breaking news this morning from Pakistan. And for the latest, we go to NBC's chief foreign correspondent, Richard Engel, reporting today from London. <laughs> right. Right. And that's you can see you can see Pakistan from there. <laughs> so, OK, you are making a not so subtle critique of the ability for the media to, to function the way it maybe once did. Because I make this argument all the time, too, and I, I don't mean to sound uh, maybe like a, like a grumpy old man, but it did seem to me that growing up 
we all had a couple of sources uh, for news. I, I mean, growing up, your country, people would watch Walter Cronkite and read the paper, and that was pretty much it. But now that we're so fractured, we get our information from all these different sources. By your estimation, does that not contribute to a lack of galvanization, a lack of understanding, a lack of really recognizing what the truth is in all the noise? Well, you say, you've said two things that I have to take issue with. One, uh, a little bit of time ago, the 24-7 news uh, cycle, which is is a cliche that if you turn on MSNBC or CNN in the middle of the night, you're going to see reruns. Yes, that's true. So much for the 24-7. Right, right, right. They do (laughs) repurpose. That's that's true. That's a fantasy. Right. Uh, There's probably a 12-hour news cycle. And secondly, all these sources of information are basically repeating uh, they're not sources of information. They're sources of repeating information hmm. because they don't have re- – most of the places where people get their news – I have this discussion with my wife all the time. She'll point something out from Apple – something called Apple News. And I'll say, well, where's that from? She says, Apple News. It's an aggregate. Said, no. <laughs> yeah. 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 They just are pulling stuff and repeating what somebody else had spent money, hopefully, finding out. Right. There are, you know, there's AP and Reuters and a few newspapers with some uh, reporting heft, uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, a little bit the L.A. Times, uh, some of the, a couple of the papers in Britain, uh, the Financial Times and uh, the Guardian from two different sides of the street both have fairly uh, robust reporting structures. But otherwise, I mean, most newspapers are and most news quote sources are reduced to repeating what they somebody else spent right. the money to find out. Right, right. And but but we also have been then cus- accustomed to consuming that same repeated cycle, aren't we? We were accepting this as because uh, my wife says this all the time. If I leave one of these news channels on, she'll come back in an hour and she's like, "Vish, they're saying the same thing they said an hour ago." I'm like, "Yeah, I know." Yeah, I, I don't know why I've got it on. I have no idea. What it says something about me. Like I'm a child of the media. I could, when I was a kid growing up in the '80s and '90s, uh, my best friend was the VCR. I would record. I was YouTube Harry before there was YouTube. I would record everything <laughs> that I thought was significant, and I'm just a media consuming person. And so I feel mm-hmm. I feel like I was built for the internet, and I was built for this, and now it's coming back to haunt me because I, to my wife's point. When she objectively looks at what I'm doing, she's like, this is very weird behavior to just keep watching and processing the exact same information, waiting. Hoping something different will happen. Yes, just waiting and waiting. It's like the famous cliche about like, why are they just, you know, showing the presidential podium with no one there? Like, why are are we all just watching this like it's a, you know, a fishbowl or whatever? I, I, I don't understand. So I I, I go back in, in answer to that question to if you can turn on a switch, have a camera feed and not lose viewers. It's it's the free it's the freest way to fill the right. time. Exactly. Exactly. In terms of cost. Right. That's why, you, uh, you know, you have all these news channels filling time uh, with people in little boxes telling you what you just saw and what they thought thought of it. Right. Which is, you know, the man is that the cheapest way to fill time. These <laughs> right. people these people are on, you know, they're, you're paying them. It's like corporations and lawyers. They might as well sue you. Their lawyers are on staff. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the reasons I gravitated towards comedy as a young person is because I kind of felt like I was getting the truth. Um, I mentioned earlier that I view your role uh, as someone who studies kind of human behavior. 
uh, a little bit, and forgive me if that's, uh, first of all, I think you agreed with me at the time, right? That you yes, don't... I did. Okay, yeah. So on some level... But I'm going to be tr- I'm gonna be Trumpian and say, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check the tape. Hopefully the yeah. tape checks out and we can worry about this contradiction later. But no, there's something about the truth coming from comedians. I feel like comedians tell us the truth, and that's why we respect them. So in terms of what we were just discussing, you're releasing mm-hmm. a record called The Many Moods of Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. it's satire. Uh, do you hope it, beyond making us laugh and entertaining mm-hmm. us, do you hope mm-hmm. it has some efficacy beyond that? Do you hope it makes people think about things that they, maybe they haven't contemplated? Well, that would be nice. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think the the kind of comedy I do uh, is is not, you know, silly comedy. I, I, I love silly comedy. Uh, it's just not what I what I do. But um, so uh, the the thought that some it might trigger uh, uh, some something other than laughter in people, or something in addition to laughter in people, is sort of built into the 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 form. Mm. Uh, I don't uh, think it will have any other effect. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't I, I I don't expect what I do to change minds uh, or affect uh, the uh, larger political. Scene. I just think that's a you know that's a sad fantasy for a comedian to have, and uh, is a person who does have that fan- uh, entertain that fantasy is uh, doomed to a lifetime of disappointment. <laughs> but do you must in your in your you know in your history in entertainment you must have seen, and we're seeing it a little bit now. Uh, if you count sort of social media platforms as being a a vehicle for change on some level, because people are expressing themselves. Maybe not with a song, maybe not with a comedy bit, but some in some cases we've seen it now. A post, you know, some form mm-hmm. of expression can actually trigger movements, action, change. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, except for the change part, hmm. I'm 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 a bit of a skeptic. Uh, uh, I I would hope so, but uh, I'm, I'm waiting for I'm waiting to for the winter. The, the winter. Literally, this you're waiting yeah. for this. Oh, you're talking about COVID particularly? No, I'm talking about, you know, people get out on the streets in the summertime and it looks like, ooh, this is for real. And then wintertime comes and it, it seems to go away. Uh, and and I think the, the powers that be kind of uh, count on that, yeah. that uh, the, flame, the flame tends to go out. Well, I mean, in satirizing... Trump the way you have with this mm-hmm. this new collection of, of songs and the videos you're making. I mean, it stands to reason that maybe more than some expressions, you're you're tapping into passion and reason, if I may use that cliche. Like I, I'm you're the, to me that's what satire is is great at doing. It's sort of shining a light on the truths we don't really want to acknowledge, maybe a little bit, and it's also making it's making us think and laugh and enjoy ourselves, but you leave at the end of it, I think, thinking differently a little bit, ideally. I know you're saying this might be a, a false hope for a comedian, but surely you've experienced that kind of satire in the past um, by, by others, or maybe you've heard of uh, the efficacy your work has had uh, from fans? If, if, they, if they like it and laugh, uh, that's all I really uh, expect, is, is, I guess, the best way to put it, you know? Right. Um, okay. Everything else is bonus. Right. So now you've made a, a record. Traditionally, I would think you would tour uh, something like this if you could. You put a band together or what have you. 
what are you doing <laughs> in the in the as a performer? As I know you did a performance uh, some months ago as uh, Derek Small as your character from Spinal Tap. Is mm-hmm. that correct? We did a, a full on uh, concert uh, with not one but two orchestras. <laughs> Uh, you know, rock and roll excess, baby. Um, and uh, shot it. Uh, it'll be out as a concert film pretty soon. I don't think this really would have lent itself to uh, a touring kind of thing because, as I say, I want the, the illusion of it, it th- that I get in the videos by making it seem like that's really Donald Trump singing this. And I don't think we could have achieved that on stage. Right, right. Uh, okay. So um, what we're doing is we're releasing a song a week. A Donald Trump song a week uh, during this fraught period, and uh, uh, a couple of videos. The first one was "Son-in-Law," and then the next one will be a song called "Executive Time." I don't mm. know if you recognize that phrase that uh, became known a couple of years ago. Uh, somebody had uh, freed up a uh, White House schedule for the day, and there were a couple of events, and in between them were these large blocks, hours at a time, called "Executive Time," where Basically, that's when he sits around and watches Fox. <laughs> and so uh, this, is, this is a song where he's just indulging in executive time, and uh, you get to see what it looks like in action or in, a- in, in action. Right. We've talked about this a little bit in, in other, uh, other aspects. You invoke 1968 as this uh, maybe similar period. Have you ever seen a figure like Trump uh, in your lifetime, Harry, uh, uh, ascend to power in this way. For a lot of us, everything that's happening is unprecedented. But like, mm-hmm. like I say, you've been around a while. Have you ever seen the likes of this? No, and I think, um, I, I, I. But on this, by the same token, I don't think we had uh, since the Great Depression an economic shock uh, like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, where the response. Uh, I mean, FDR, you read your history, uh, he ran for office on a platform 180 degrees different from what he ended up doing uh, to respond to the Depression. Mm-hmm. He adjusted his sights dramatically and diametrically opposed to what he had said he was going to do because the situation was so dire. I think we had a response to, in, in most of the West to the uh, 2008 uh Great Recession, as so-called, mm. that was quite a bit paler, uh, less robust, shall we say, and left a lot more people feeling like uh, the government didn't care about them, didn't, you know, cared about the bankers, but didn't care about them. And that set the table for not just this in the United States, but uh, the de-democratization of some of Europe, uh, example, Hungary, Poland, so forth. And no, I, I, I'm not, I, I can't recall anything like this. Uh, you know, there was a, sto- a story in the New York Times a couple months ago, the new German anti-Semitism. <laughs> and I thought, gee, the old one was so good, <laughs> but they went back to the lab. Um, it's like new Coke. That's not good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but a little, a little, even more poisonous. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think... We really, you know, the undeniably important historical milestone of electing the first black president in the United States blinded a lot of us to the fact that the response to that uh, economic downturn was insufficient. 
and didn't reach a lot of people who were really suffering and who lost, you know, millions of people in the United States lost jobs and lost homes. Right. And, you know, we're talking now about, oh, the uh, the eviction moratorium may, may be ending. Well, there was no eviction moratorium or foreclosure moratorium in 2009. Yeah, right, right, exactly. People, right. people, lo- people lost homes, screw them. Mm. You know, and, they, and they basically have said, screw, screw you right back. That's what Donald Trump is. You, the, the, there's a phrase, of course, uh, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Um, you invoked mm-hmm. uh, Nixon. You invoked Ronald Reagan becoming president as an actor. There's so mm-hmm. many parallels between some aspects of this time we're living in. These four years with Trump seem like, you know, particularly in your country, like you've lived all this before. I don't know what's going on there in terms of not learning from history or just repeating. Like, it just seems like you're on a, we are on a loop. And you mentioned yeah. the new Nazis or whatever it was, the new anti, the new anti-Semites, the new, Ger- the new German anti-Semitism. Yeah. So, um, what's going on there? Do you think? Well, what's going on here is that history is a, a word of uh, in America that is a synonym for rubbish. Hmm. You know, ah, he's history. Right. Right. We we do not we do not uh, pay attention to history. What one reason I like to live in New Orleans is because that city does and reveres its history and and. Uh, you know, protects it and preserves it. But, you know, Ronald Reagan was not Donald Trump. Ronald Reagan had been governor of California for eight years. Mm-hmm. He had experience. I mean, not 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 as a good governor, but he knew what the job entailed. Uh, I think Donald Trump thought all the evidence from the many books that have come out, uh, particularly Michael Wolff's book way, way at the beginning, was that he, he never expected to be elected. This was a, a brand enhancement exercise for him you know just a way to get the name around a lot and um he was shocked and i you know he he'd even fired chris christie who had organized for a possible transition in case he won and so even the preparation that was made was tossed out it's very much like the uh that reminds me of the work that had been done i think in the state department for like what happens after we get rid of Saddam Hussein and right. they just threw that book away and started improvising and that that worked out real fine too uh, <laughs> and uh, like you know sending the army home with their guns uh, what could they possibly do then uh, and and Trump has just been uh, trying to replicate in my opinion what it was like to run a family-owned company where he had no stockholders or board of directors to answer to and mainly, you know, family to work for him. And uh, his frustration, uh, I think, has been long in, in long-standing in that the presidency isn't like that. There are all these alternative power centers, yeah. Congress and the courts and, you know, bureaucra- bureaucracies inside the executive branch. And uh, I, I don't think he yet conceives of of what this thing really is and so i don't think we've ever had somebody who so little understood what the job of the presidency was right but it's also as we've discussed uh, earlier in terms of the manipulation of the media and the manipulation of information what we're talking about i i find fascinating because we're talking about ahistoricism on the one hand, but what he's also and his cohort are really into is cultural erasure. So you've got 
not only ignoring the, the the past, but also those who invoke it or those who they represent uh, progress, there seems to be a movement towards just shutting them down, ignoring them, or in some cases, uh, something more severe. Do you see where I'm coming from there? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I guess I differ in, a, in this way, uh, and, and in what you're saying sounds to me very if I may, American, in that I, I, I think liberals in America have this notion that progress is linear. And I think that ignores the reality that America is a ven- very pendular sure. country. Uh, it, it moves in these pe- it, very strong pendular motions. So gambling is prohibited everywhere. And now 20, 30 years later, gambling is f- permitted everywhere. Right. Uh, cannabis was forbidden everywhere, and now cannabis is permitted everywhere. And, and it swings back and forth on a lot of these uh, factors of the social fabric. And the key one, in, I think, in this particular moment is everybody assumed, everybody on the liberal side, assumed that the election of the first black president was turning the page and an a, a arrow pointing straight ahead. And it could have been predicted that there would be, in a country still denying and grappling with the uh, legacy of slavery, there would have been a fierce and fearsome backlash. And we are, and that also is the cause of Trumpism. So we, we are ostensibly uh, chatting because uh, you have uh, conceived of a record that is criticizing Trump, and he may it's be— making, It's making, making fun of him. Making fun of Trump specifically. He is an avatar of conservatism, but as we talk, it seems to me that you have just as many criticisms, not as many issues. I shouldn't say as many, but you seem to view liberalism as— Similarly, not okay. I'm going to be careful here. I don't think you think it's as complicit. You have issues with liberalism uh, that need to be addressed uh, that you feel like we should be addressing as well as making fun of someone like Trump. Well, I I just I I, I say what I see, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you know, and sometimes people don't appreciate being told the truth uh, from people like you. I think maybe is that fair <laughs> well, to say? If you <laughs> oh, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> Are we? I think it's more than I think it's more than fair, right? So, in the uh, you know, I invoke this notion of being hyperpolarized right now. What you're saying cuts to the core of where we need need to be kind of thinking. Like, it's not a left right and one is wrong and one is correct situation. We really need to examine how we function as a whole and and, mm-hmm. and not just pick a side, pick a team, and just go all in on that team. We have to be more rational and reasonable. And and I don't mean to use the phrase down the middle because people think that means watered down, but it's sort right. of true, isn't it? Well, I, it's it's to me it's it's cafeteria politics. You know, it's like right. uh, somebody may have a good idea on on one side or the other, and the fact that they're on that side and you're not doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider that idea. Hmm. Um, that's not to say that uh, there's an equality or equivalence uh, of the number of good ideas that occur on one side or the other. I'm, I'm not sure I believe that either. Yeah. But I do think that the view of progress as linear uh, gets people in trouble uh, because it's, it, you have to, it, it, it's, it's in contrast with the way America works, which is these wild back and forth swings. Fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I appreciate that. I want to. We've been talking about history and timelines, and you're you're talking about linear time. 
Are you familiar with this whole notion of the Simpsons predict the future? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm of two minds of it. Like initially, I was like, "That's kind of interesting." How often that show sort of did seem to be on, you know, prescient about things. But I'm more now thinking it was like a self fulfilling prophecy or something. Like maybe, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you know, as you mean I the United s- States, the United States is obeying the Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe something's going on there. Where at the heart of it, like if for the Simpsons to predict something, predict something, so to speak. Uh, 20 years ago and then for it to happen uh, mm-hmm. I don't mean it's like taking obeying the Simpsons but maybe as a show as the writing staff as the cast you were kind of on to something it goes back to my comedy getting at the truth of things that mm-hmm. didn't really spread uh, into national consciousness until maybe two decades you know <laughs> uh, yeah, you know yeah. maybe maybe this stuff is vapid maybe this is ridiculous what is your take on this whole Simpsons predict the future stuff well, I'm not on the writing staff. I, I'm not part of that that process at the show. Hmm. So I have very little insight into how that any of that works. I know that in my own experience, I've made kind of what I'd call intuitive leaps about characters uh, without knowledge and found out later on that it was true. The silliest example was there used to be this American sportscaster called Kurt Gowdy and uh, – my colleagues in a comedy group and I were doing uh, spurious coverage of the Rose Parade, the, probably the silliest public <laughs> event in America. Yeah. You know, a million people gathered to watch commercials made of flowers. <laughs> and uh, and Kurt Gowdy was uh, one of the uh, guests on the on the coverage. And uh, somebody asked how he, how he you know why he seemed so uh, uh, alert in the morning. He says, "Well, I'm never never really good until I've had my morning cup of cutty." meaning Cuddy Sark. Right. And years later, I found out that was his beverage of choice. <laughs> but it just, you know, it was an, an an intuitive blurt. And sometimes those things, you know, if, you, if you're if you free enough uh, and you know just enough, uh, you, can, you can hit the mark without ever knowing it or knowing why you hit it. So it may be that. It may, I don't think there's a... Uh, a cabal that's sitting there, no, you know, I, trying to predict the future no, at The Simpsons. I think they got a show to do. No, I, it just goes back to when I say comedy gets to the truth of things. I do think. Do you agree? Like, I feel like comedians tend to have their finger on the pulse, if I may use another cliche, of <laughs> of how we function and what we're, our impulses might be. Even like, I, I do think there is a a prescient notion to getting at the. It comes across as prescient when you tell the truth, <laughs> and so when you yeah. when you tell the truth. Well, I think I, I think given the amount of uh, of mendacity in um, modern culture, it comes as a surprise when you tell the truth. Right, exactly, and so that's why people are freaking out that the Simpsons knows everything when really I think yeah. they were just telling the truth a little bit ahead of when we were ready to all process it. Um, Does that make sense? You know, I I mentioned the the prevalence of mendacity and i've been thinking a lot about advertising lately i was a, as a kid i believed in brand names and i'd pester my mom if she got the off-brand canned peaches or something like that right and then i worked in the advertising business for a while hmm. as a kid hmm. uh, i i was an intern at a big advertising agency in new york and i started you know getting to know the truth about all this my mom ran a, a gas station um, improbably enough for a while and it was a texaco station right. and uh one day i saw the tanker truck coming in to fill up the tanks at the gas station and it was chevron 
I said, hey, I thought we were a, a Texaco station. She said, they send the truck from the nearest refinery. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and that just blows all this careful brand identity building to smithereens. Right. You know? Right. And I've had other experiences like that that strengthened that. And I think we've – there's a wonderful book by uh, Tim Wu at Columbia University called The Attention Merchants. Hmm. And it's about the century and a half that the advertising business has spent you know, clawing more share of, of America's and maybe the world's eyeballs right. and hence brains. Uh, and I, I thought, you know, people in Britain would always say, why are Americans so stupid? <laughs> and I thought, well, no, I mean, the intelligence is pretty much distributed evenly across the, uh, <laughs> right. the, the species. So what's going on here? And I thought, well, I'm, it might be nice to have a, a, a mega study of different countries their responses on some sort of general knowledge quiz that could be culturally uh, related so that it's appropriate to each different country. but And compare that with the amount of advertising people are exposed to in each country. I think advertising colonizes parts of the brain that could otherwise be used for information. That's fair. And I actually have been finding that some of this lockdown stuff has been rather illuminating on a even on a vocational level, like I don't know, Harry, are the Simpsons in production right now. Yes. Are you, are you yeah. working from home? Yeah. Isn't that I'm working from home? And yeah. for years, I've said I don't understand why I have to take this laptop that you gave me from my house <laughs> to an office. Like I'm taking the exact computer and I'm taking a two-hour train, mm-hmm. and I could just do this from home. And they'd say, No, you can't do that. That's not how it works. What I've been finding is actually the truth is the truth is we can we can do a lot of things that they told us we couldn't do. Are you finding that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happened with The Simpsons. I'd say, I have a studio. I do a radio show from it every week. Uh, I can do this from home. No, we have to the better equipment, blah, 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 blah. And the minute the co- uh, coronavirus thing happened, they, they sent me a microphone and say, do it from home. <laughs> that's right. So there's something going on here. I feel like most of our talk has been about the truth, and I appreciate... Uh, I appreciate your, uh, I guess, allegiance and, you know, fandom of the truth. I feel like (laughs) your affinity for the truth has held us all in good stead, Harry, if I might say. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So uh, anything new in Springfield these days uh, that you want to share or anywhere else? We've talked a lot about uh, the the Trump record, but anything else you're up to? Um, I have a movie that I'm uh, struggling to get made, a musical comedy, but I, I really can't say anything more about it until uh, the old green light okay. flashes. Okay. Yeah, but uh, it's a big project, and I've got a lot of really wonderful people involved. I assume the coronavirus stuff is not helping uh, move things along at this point. Is that fair? I would I would say nothing is <laughs> helping move this thing along. I think I think Earth is not helping move this thing along. Right. Um, it's such a process. Right. Uh, right. It's amazing. Okay. Uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, so everything else, you're doing The Simpsons, everything's great. Uh, my son uh, is uh, re- very obsessed with Mr. Burns, I must say, and and uh, Smithers. So uh, just so you mm-hmm. know, he's nine, and I, I don't know how he even, I'm starting to worry. I, he's finding stuff out that I, I'm trying to be all controlling, you know, and make sure he doesn't get the wrong stuff, and he's, he's found The <laughs> Simpsons. And we've been having mm-hmm. fun doing impressions of, of those characters. I actually wonder, do you get people... Get doing impressions of your voices to you, and is it often uh, annoying, or are you flattered? How do you feel? Uh, I I don't often get that. I think people have. <laughs> this is going to be strange for me to say. More common sense than that. Um, 
But there is a guy who has been posting his impressions uh, or of, of Simpsons voices uh, on my Twitter feed, oh, no. and uh, I, I do wish he would stop. Okay, right. <laughs> not, not that I watch it. Not that I watch it, but it's just like, dude, why do you think I would? <laughs> Dot, dot, dot. Okay. I, I think I understand, but are you personally, is it a personal affront? You've created this thing, or is it just like it's a hacked move to do an impression to the guy who did the voice? It's it's basically like he's campaigning for my job. Oh, right. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. I understand. Yeah, that, right. that, that strikes me as unseemly. Yes, it does. You know what? I agree with you. In a, in a world of unseemly behavior that we've yeah. been addressing today, that seems particularly bad. I would agree. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate uh, this time. Harry, if people want to learn more about you and the many moods of Donald Trump and all your work, is there somewhere on the Internet that uh, you would like to send them? I have a website, harryshear.com. Uh, you can get my radio show there every week. And uh, the, the two, first two Donald Trump songs are on uh, YouTube, just YouTube, Harry Shearer, and you should uh, find Son-in-Law and uh, COVID-180. Okay. Now, if we can go out on perhaps one of those songs, uh, would you, A, permit it, and B, would you choose one of them for us to hear? Um, I think, how much time do you have? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's a podcast. It's the Wild West. Oh, okay. Well, the, I think COVID-180, because we're still living through it. Okay. Anything you want to say about it in particular? You've taken a particular. Well, it's, is it all evident in the in the, in the yeah? Lyrics? It's it's just it's basically just like what we've been living through. Um, okay. Uh, coming from the Donald. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, let's go to that uh, right now. This is COVID one eighty from the many moods of Donald Trump by the great Harry Shearer. Harry, thank you so much for this time, and best of luck with everything going forward. Thank you, Vish. February It's under control Just a few cases Then we rock And we roll The market's like a rocket It's on Twitter and Reddit You could call me crazy But I'm taking credit Corona's just a neighborhood in Queens. We're number one, not some poop hole like Haiti. People keep watching when you do a COVID one. 
At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You know, every once in a while I think, who am I going to get on this show that I would love to have on the show? And, and, you know, you have your... You have your mental front of the front of mind people that you think of, you know, the obvious things. And then as you go on and you make a podcast every week, you, you just stumble into things. You fall ass backwards into talking to people you have admired most of your life and you just hadn't thought to think that you could get them on your show. And then your friend uh, Jason Schneider, publicist in Canada, says, Harry Shearer is available to chat. And you think, oh, my goodness, I have been a fan of Harry Shearer most of my life. Wouldn't it be great to have Harry Shearer on the show? And then it happens. And then you have a discussion like I just did. Thank you very much for listening to this episode with uh, Harry Shearer. This is the 558th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all Apple and Google platforms and Spotify and YouTube and other things as well. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and are looking for, or if you wish to learn more about me, sign up for my semi-regularly scheduled newsletter, I urge you to visit my website, vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on various social media platforms and follow the show on Twitter, at vishcreative or uh, at vishkana if you want to follow me directly. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. You can start to with any amount you want. $6, $8, $9, $10,
$3,500 a month. Whatever you want to donate, at the, at the end of the month, I think you can change it. I think. I know. I know. If you're like, ah, I can't do nine anymore, I want to do seven. Or I can't do six, I got to go down to one. Totally understandable, but it supports the show and there's exclusive content for anyone who donates $6 or more. So please go to patreon.com slash creative control to support this show. Thanks again to live at masseyhall.com where you can watch beautifully captured concerts by great Canadian artists. Also, for their in-kind support of this show, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. Can't do the show without them, although I haven't partaken of the in-kind part of this these deals in a while. But that's fine. I love them so much, and I hope they're doing well in all of this chaos, and uh, hopefully I will sample their wares someday again. Thanks, as always, to Jim Guthrie. Uh, he lends me some music for the show, and you can learn more about him at jimguthrie.org. And finally, as I said, I think at the top of all of this uh, little spiel here, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with the uh, legendary Harry Shear and for checking out past episodes of the show, maybe subscribing to the podcast uh, and telling your friends about it as well. All of that helps, and I will continue to make podcasts as long as you want me to, uh, and I think uh, some of you do, so I'm going to keep going. And until then, I will, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.